We're having a class day on the Fifth Ecumenical Council, which occurred in uh, 553, Constantinople. And we'll be covering the kind of the period leading up to the council from uh, Council of Chalcedon, which was in 450. So this is Chalcedon, the Fourth Council, going to 553, the, the Fifth Council of Constantinople. The sources, this um, is not a period that's uh, been very well represented in English translations, unfortunately. Although, in some ways, it's, it's a, a crucial time for the development of Orthodox Christology. The reason is that Western uh, Christology tends to focus on the Fourth Council as kind of the end that produces, from the Western point of view, they saw the Council of Chalcedon as sort of the final uh, formulation of Christological doctrine, whereas we uh, see, well, just in the Eastern Church, of course, this is when you know the big uh, controversy that produced the modern Monophysite churches uh, occurs is in this this period, and so for us, it's this is a very formative uh, period of theology when, and we see the Fifth Council really as the definitive. Uh, Council for Christological Doctrine. So, from the Orthodox Church's point of view, this is a very crucial period. Unfortunately, it's not a period that you could just pick up the English translations and read about. There are a few exceptions, but uh, I'll just go through some of the things, the sources. There's uh, two historical uh, works that deal with this period. We were earlier, you know, the early church is covered by Eusebius' church history, and then there was Socrates and Sosman wrote about the uh, time of the Arian controversy. And then this period is covered by a uh, Greek uh, Orthodox writer named Evagrius. Evagrius' church history. Evagrius Scholasticus, not uh, not Evagrius Ponticus, the, the, the originist, but the, a later person, who was contemporary uh, with this. He was born in about 530, 600. Uh, and there is an English translation of it, but it is very hard to find, because last I knew uh, it was anyway, unless someone's come out with it since. And there was recently a reprint of the Greek text by uh, an AMS press, but uh, that I, the English, I'm not sure how easily to get. There's a uh, Monophysite uh, work called the Syriac Chronicle of Zechariah of Mytilene that's available in English, but it's it's only with a, a, it's, a, a it's a specialty press, AMS press reprinted a, the English translation of it. Uh, but that's at least something you can get. And then the uh, of course there's the uh, the, the chronicle, the world chronicle of uh, Theophanes, but uh, that he's actually lived much later, so he's not a, he's not as uh, much of a primary source for this period. He, he's really contemporary with the iconoclasts, and also the uh, English translation that's available doesn't go back into this period. The uh, church writers in this period are not also not very well. Represented the a lot of them did not survive intact. The uh, Neo Chalcedonian early Neo Chalcedonian writers are only found in fragments. Some in the Acts of the Sixth Council, some in the writings of uh, 
the monophysites who were attacking them. And then when you get to the later Neo-Chalcedonian authors, uh, the works of, of Ephraim, the Patriarch of Antioch, are only preserved in the uh, library of Photius in his summaries of, their, of the works. And then Leonti, the works of Leontius of Byzantium and Leontius of Jerusalem, who I believe are the same person, but they're some treated separate, uh, mostly are not translated into English, although some pieces of Leontius of Byzantium's works are occasionally. In, I've seen them in anthologies, but the, uh, the one author who has recently made it into English in, in, uh, uh, is in some ways one of the most important ones, and that's uh, the Emperor Justinian. And this uh, translation by Kenneth Weshi was published by St. Vladimir's Press about 10 years ago. And that's, uh, that's now, so that's, these are, these are uh, some of the definitive uh, Orthodox works from the period, and they are easily available now in English. And the, one of them is the Edict on the Right Faith, which is kind of a uh, standard, I mean, uh, kind of definitive uh, proclamation on the Orthodox faith made by the Emperor right before the Fifth Ecumenical Council. And some of the, uh, Justinian's earlier works are in here as well. But that's, he's probably the only major author from the period whom you can easily get your hands on. There is um, a translation of uh, Severus of Antioch, and I can't remember, that was published, his, his uh, debate with the Aphlardodocetus is translated into English as well, but it's in a, also in an obscure press, so we have a hard time finding it, but it's in English. The most, but most of, the, most of the material, the great majority of the material from this period is not in English. The other, oh, uh, from Lives of Saints, the uh, Cyril of Scythopolis's Lives of Euthemius the Great, St. Saba, and uh, uh, St. Theodore the Cenobiarch, which are all contemporary with this, in this period between Palestine and Constantinople, uh, those have recently been translated uh, and published by, I think by Cistercian Press. It's, uh, I think it's called the Palestinian Fathers or something by Cyril Sothopoulos. I'm not sure of the exact title, but that's available. The other major uh, source, of course, is the documents of the Council, and that's available in the Nicene, Post-Nicene Fathers, Volume 14, which is a source for all our ecumenical councils, but this has also the uh, decisions of the Fifth Ecumenical Council, which we refer to. And then from a uh, point of view of, the, of a secondary literature, a very good treatment is uh, Father Meindorf's Imperial Unity in Christian uh, Divisions. Gives a nice account of the council in, the, in this period as well. So that's just, if you want to do work on your own, it's hard in this time if you're not using uh, Greek and Syriac and such, but, but at least some of, that, some of that's available. That's... Uh, one of the problems, I mean, it's really, you know, you think, you know, you look at Nicene Father series, you think, wow, you know, we've really been very industrious in, in bringing all this early church stuff into English. And so now, you know, if I like have that, I, I kind of know everything there is to know about the early church. But, uh, you know, when you look at, and that's might be partially true for certain periods, the periods that the uh, Western church was interested in, 
such as the Aryan controversy, there actually has been a lot of work done on those periods. But in the later periods where they, the Western Church did not feel a strong sympathy or a strong interest in that, then it's amazing actually the great majority of the uh, important documents were, have not been were not translated early on. And, and actually now, you know, just when you think about this works of Justinian, like Jesus, Justinian's Edict on the Right Faith, well, that's a, that's a crucial, you know, standard document for the Orthodox Church. But it's only, I think it's like translated, in, you know, published for the first time in English in 1990. So, uh, and the lives of Cyril Sophopolis' lives of uh, St. Saba, St. Euthemius the Great, uh, you know, are, are just uh, kind of major works that it would be uh, standard, again, for, for most Christians to read, but until very recently they haven't been available. It's just the, the uh, it's only now that the uh, attention of the early church scholarly community is beginning to turn to the later periods which are more uh, which are important for the Orthodox Church but have not previously been recognized as important for uh, the Western Church. Yeah. Is there any other questions about that? Or? So what you mean by saying it was lost? It was just... Well, in a sense, it's not lost as so much as that it was uh, not brought over into English. Okay. So, so for people, for us in America, they didn't have access to it. So, I mean, the people in Greece presumably <laughs> uh, could still read about it. But we left off. The Council of Chalcedon uh, seemed to solve the problem of uh, Eutychianism, but in fact. Uh, didn't really solve the problem. The, council, the third ecumenical council and the teachings of Cyril were that you had that Christ equals the Logos. And by the Logos, that's kind of Cyril's word for the second person of the Trinity. That's who Christ is. And so that's sort of one person but not only one person, but who is the one person? And then who is he? Who is Christ? He's the Logos. That's what Cyril answers that question. Now the Council of Chalcedon in Leo's tome answers another question. Uh, how many natures are there of Christ? Well, there's two. He's divine and he's human. So we have sort of the two natures, or we call it, but to, to avoid confusion, perhaps we'll say, you know, the two essences, because that's how we can avoid having to be confused by the terminology. So divine and human. And the uh, Council of Chalcedon also speaks of one, uh, well, we'll say natures, two essences. Leo says, uh, one person, but but doesn't say who's the one person. Now, the other uh, side of this is that the people at Chalcedon were mostly followers of Cyril, and they, uh, you know, they originally wanted to formulate Chalcedon in terms that Cyril had used. But Leo's uh, representative said, no, we have to use the terms that Leo uses in the, in the tome. 
And Leo had condemned uh, some of Cyril's phrases and introduced his own. One of, one of Leo, uh, Cyril's phrases is from two natures and one incarnate nature. And Leo talks about in two natures. Now, the people at Chalcedon were very reluctant to put that in because they wanted to use the same thing that Cyril had used. But to Leo thought that that was, you know, he didn't like that expression because the Eutychians were using it. And so he wanted this expression. And, it, and so that was put into the council. Now, the people at the council clearly saw themselves as adding Leo to Cyril. But they, at the same time, um, Leo's influence was used to sort of bring uh, back some of the people who had been condemned at the Third Ecumenical Council and who kind of made themselves uh, allies of Leo in support of two natures. And these people were the friends of Nestorius, such as uh, Theodoret and, and Ibis who were actually uh, enemies of Cyril, but then who had, were restored at Chalcedon. This meant that although the consensus in the Eastern Church was Cyril plus a distinction of two natures, clarifying that terminology, the introduction of Chalcedon and Leo's own perception that, that people like Theodore and Ibis were much more reliable allies than these followers of Cyril who actually were questioning Cyril Leo's tome and were wondering what he meant by certain expressions. Uh, he was very intolerant. He kind of believed that many people in the East were Eutychian heretics, and so he felt that if anyone didn't accept his tome, you know, that meant that they were a heretic. Yes? Okay. Eutychius was a, a heretic who believed that the human nature of Christ was um, essentially disappeared in the Incarnation. And Christ really only had one nature which was a mixed but essentially divine nature that the humanity kind of evaporated. Um, and so Leo was very unwilling to uh, negotiate with Eastern Cyrillians to clarify his own doctrine. This created the impression that and the that the fall and the ascendancy of uh, of people like Theodoret, so that the impression that Cyril, I mean the Chalcedon, uh, was seen primarily in this sort of first phase as kind of anti-Cyrillian, uh, and there were a number of uh, Patriarch Gennadius uh, was definitely very critical of, of saw Cyril as, as uh, an enemy and uh, Theodoret wrote a number of books against Cyril of Alexandria uh, and they became the defenders of the Cal of Council of Chalcedon giving the impression that well Cyril had been defeated at Chalcedon and, and the third council was kind of wiped out now and, and uh, although Nestorius was still condemned Nestorius' followers and the Nestorius, remember, is only 
one member of this whole school of Theodore of Mopsuestia, this Eastern uh, school, sometimes called School of Antioch, which essentially was Nestorian, saw uh, Jesus and the Son of God as, as really two uh, people. So this led many of the people who followed Cyril in the East to say, well, this Council of Chalcedon is not very good. And there started to be uh, contentions. Initially, the contentions were put down by military force. But uh, eventually, the uh, you know, theological contentions and then uh, the East started to become divided. And there was an attempt by the Eastern Church, which originally had not intended the majority of the church were not this this group of uh, let's say former associates of Nestorius is a very small group in the east but they were becoming very vocal and so the majority said well wait a minute we're not intending to give up Cyril of Alexandria here so let's uh, let's clarify this situation and kind of somehow get back to where we were and the oh I should just put down the piece so the the people who were breaking away, uh, this is what becomes the Monophysites. The Monophysites are not uh, Eutychian heretics. They are Cyrillians who are become convinced that the Council of Chalcedon was a betrayal of Cyril. And so they want to go back to Cyril's original terminology. They don't want Leo's Things they say, oh, Leo, it must be, he's, he's kind of opening the door for Nestorius again. So, what the main part of the church wanted to do was say, okay, let's clarify all this so that, you know, you're all, all you guys are running out of the church, uh, and then we have these, you know, anti Cyrillian people uh, thinking that Council of Salston is supporting them. So, let's somehow solve this problem. And the first way was cut by imperial intervention uh, by two emperors. One was the Vasiliscus, and the more successful one was Zeno. And what they tried to do was to uh, create a consensus in the East around uh, the, the teachings of Cyril, basically to take the church back before Chalcedon. He said, let's, okay, let's just forget about Chalcedon for now. We all agree on the Third Ecumenical Council. We all agree on St. Cyril. We all agree that we don't, we're not Eutychians. We're not Nestorians. So let's just agree on that. And that's what the document uh, Zeno used. It was called the Henoticon. And it was a statement of kind of the first three Ecumenical Councils plus Cyril. And his intention, and, and the intention of, of all these, actually, it's interesting that Basiliscus, although he only lasted a couple of years, his uh, encyclical, which was very similar, uh, had between five to 700 bishops sign it. And we never hear about these things, but actually what it was was an attempt by the Eastern Church to sort of arrest this schism that was occurring and to, again, clarify where they stood versus these anti-Cyrillian people and trying to say, well, look, you know, we're, we're, we're Cyrillians just like you Monophysite people. Let's, before you go off and form another church, let's just agree what we all believe the same thing. So let's just formalize it and stick as one church. 
Uh, and this actually worked for quite a while, but uh, there were certain difficulties, and I'll, I'll go over to them, but is, yes, somebody had a question? Yes. Uh, yes. What, what did you say was signed by 300? Well, it was a, a similar statement put out by the Emperor Basiliscus. It was called the encyclical. I mean, it's not a very uh, illuminating title, but uh, yeah. just a kind of a letter. <laughs> so, the, uh, is there any other questions? Okay. Well, so this, this actually got the agreement of... Uh, the Patriarch of Alexandria, who was the, the church in Egypt with the largest group of Monophysites, they agreed, uh, the, the Bishop of, Patriarch of Antioch, Patriarch of Jerusalem, Patriarch of Constantinople. There were two groups of people, well, three groups of people who did not like this idea. One were the anti-Cyrillian Chalcedonians, who were basically against anything. They thought, they were thinking, well, yeah, we, we got rid of Cyril. The Chalcedon, they don't want him back, so they continue to oppose it. Uh, and then on the other side, you had the, let's say, what we could call the radical monophysites. And the interesting thing about the radical monophysites were not uh, their, their radicalness, which is sometimes they're what they're also known as the, uh, the separatists. The separatists, uh, that's what makes them radical, is that not that they had any kind of more extreme uh, view of Christology, but their doctrine was basically the same as, as the Cyrillians or even as the Orthodox, but what, they, what made them radical was that they could not accept being in communion with the Council of Chalcedon. They felt that the Council of Chalcedon was just so bad that it had to be anathematized. And so that makes them... Uh, radical because they were unwilling to compromise on anything. But that was originally a very small group. And then on the other side, uh, you had these, but the most important holdout was actually uh, Rome. Initially, uh, the popes were feeling that there shouldn't be anything, uh, as Leo did, that there shouldn't be anything other than the tome. The tome should be the, the definition and anyone who questioned the tome was really uh, a Eutychian heretic, probably. So they were very upset that the uh, Chalcedonian patriarchs were, you know, forming a union with the Monophysites based on something other than a complete acceptance of Leo, or or even qualification of Leo. But but that's actually what the East did for quite a while. Uh, all of the Eastern patriarchates were in communion with each other based on this definition of the first three councils plus Cyril. Uh, what ultimately, uh, the reason why we don't have that today <laughs> is because uh, two things happen. See, I guess one was that in Rome, the, there was a, a pope who was very favorable. There were two popes who were favorable to the Hanadikon. And, and this was the... Uh, okay. After uh, Zeno, there was an, another emperor, Anastasius. And Anastasius initially supported the same policies as his predecessors. But 
And he originally, there was some hope that the, the two uh, popes were interested in, in, going, in supporting the Hanadikon as well. But the second one, uh, he, his election was contested by someone else. Uh, his, it was Pope Lawrence was connected by Pope Symmachus. And the, uh, at that time, Italy was ruled by the Ostrogoths, who were a Germanic tribe that were not part of the Roman Empire. And they did not want, the king of the Ostrogoths was getting nervous because um, the, the Franks, who were up above him in, in France, they had been pagans, and now they converted to Orthodox Christianity. And Theodoric was an Arian. And uh, the, the kingdom of Burgundy, which had been Arian, converted to Orthodoxy. And so now he was um, suddenly feeling isolated, whereas before all, the, all these kingdoms were either pagan or, or Arian. Now uh, he realized that maybe he was one of the few Arian kings left, and he was getting nervous about his people aligning with the empire to perhaps overthrow him. So he decided that he didn't like uh, the Pope Lawrence because the Pope Lawrence would have, by accepting the Hanadikon, meant that the, the papacy would be in complete communion with all the other Eastern patriarchates. So he, he didn't agree to that, and he supported the other uh, candidate, Symmachus, who was of the kind of more like Leo that everybody else has to change to match what I believe, rather than, I'm not, we're not going to have any other formulas besides the tome. And so that meant that Rome, uh, what became known as the Laurentian Schism, because Lawrence was the loser, meant that Rome was kind of became uh, opposed to the Hanoticon in a kind of, uh, what seemed like, like a kind of pretty permanent way. The other thing that happened is there was a war in Persia um, that turned, that made Anastasius think that he needed the support of the Monophysites in, on the uh, eastern frontier. This caused him to make a change from accepting the Hanadikon to now backing the radical Monophysites about halfway through his reign. And he had one of their leaders become Patriarch of Antioch, and his name was uh, Severus of Antioch. And Severus, uh, what's, what's kind of surprising, I mean, it, it says the majority of the Monophysite world was in communion with the Orthodox Church until the Emperor Anastasius decided to make this change. And then he put in the people who rejected that union as the patriarch here, and that, and then he tried to require all of the other patriarchs to anathematize Chalcedon. And there was uh, some uh, disturbances, civil disturbances about that, and they, the patriarchs refused. But this is what kind of brought the, uh, the un this union of the Hanoticon to an end, was that the emperor essentially no longer supported it and tried to force uh, the adoption of a of just a simple total rejection of Chalcedon. And this kind of energized uh, the Chalcedonians to say, no, you know, we want to keep Chalcedon. So it, it created, again, this split, which was then inherited by, uh, go back here to beginning, by the next emperor, whose nephew, uh, the next emperor was Justin, and his nephew, more famous, uh, was Justinian. 
they, I'm sorry, these are who? This is the next, this is after Anastasius, uh, the Emperor Justin became Emperor, and his nephew Justinian succeeded him. This is Emperor of Byzantine Empire? Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. we still have this Arian in Rome? Or? Right, Theodoric was there, and um, yeah. Yes, until another 15 years or so, they'll continue to be Arian. One of the curious things that happens is that when Anastasius turns against the Hanoticon, this is what initiates, because in a way, this solved the problem in terms of saying, yes, uh, we Chalcedonians, we accept Cyril as the basis. So that we that was kind of created this idea that a unified uh, Cyril and Chalcedon go together. With Anastasius' uh, actions, this again called this into question. And so there began a theological movement, which is called, uh, by some, as the Neo-Chalcedonians, which actually started here at the time as a counterpoint to uh, Severus. But Neo-Chalcedonian, that's kind of a modern name for it, is really the same, teaching the same thing as the original fathers of Chalcedon believed, although it's not clear in the you know, in the, fine, in the formula of Horus of uh, Chalcedon, but the idea that Chalcedon and Cyril are meant to go together. So it's Cyril plus Chalcedon, which is the same thing that the Hanoticon was saying and that, uh, again, the early fathers were saying. But these early writers were trying to combat what Anastasius was doing in supporting Severus and saying no, because uh, Severus was saying, Okay, Chalcedon is Nestorian, so we have to reject it. They're saying, no, Chalcedon is the same, teaching the same thing as St. Cyril was teaching. They, initially, this started as a sort of underground movement in opposition to the emperor's policies. Okay, so it's kind of, and particularly in Palestine, uh, supported where, because St. Scythemius and St. Saba were supporters of Chalcedon, but also supporters of Cyril, not not supporting uh, Nestorianism. When you get to Justin, his nephew initially is kind of his theological advisor, and then he later becomes emperor himself. Uh, Justinian, all his life, was actually a great uh, Orthodox theologian, as well as being an emperor. And he realized that the neo, this, this what what we call Neo-Chalcedonian, these writers, that this is correct, that we that the Defense of Chalcedon depends upon the, the proof that Chalcedon and Cyril are really teaching the same thing. And so this has becomes uh, Justinian's policy. And this uh, policy was, was something that wasn't just Justinian, but many people were starting to, to, uh, to push. And this, uh, into, in, in coming into the West at this time, there's a, right before Justinian takes, Justin takes over, there's a letter from the Eastern bishops to uh, the Pope, Symmachus, uh, which calling for the, that, uh, that, that, we should, that the Pope should proclaim that Christ is both in two natures and from two natures. Now, of course, that's not what Leo, Leo says. Leo you know, seems to condemn from two natures and only says in two natures, and Chalcedon only uses in two natures. But the reason was that by saying what, what he wanted, what this, the Eastern bishops wanted, was they wanted a confession 
that the expressions used by Leo and the Council of Chalcedon were compatible with the expressions used by Cyril, and that really the two together represented a unified theology. And this is actually, ultimately, this is the exactly what the Fifth Council will say. Um, the problem is because we, our Western church history sort of stops at Chalcedon, most uh, people, uh, if you just ask them, well, what, what is the, you know, what is the Council of Chalcedon, you know, what's Orthodox uh, teaching? Well, Orthodox teaching is, from, is in two natures, and the Monophysites believe from two natures, and that's a heresy. Well, that's uh, not correct, because that's actually what, from two natures, what Cyril was teaching. But, of course, the, both have to be understood in their proper way, and that's what the Fifth Ecumenical Council spells out. <clears throat> but this letter, this was going on during the time of Anastasius. They were trying to uh, build this consensus. I, I don't know how many of you ever read, ever read anything by Boethius. Uh, he's a Western philosopher. You hear about him. But he actually was in Rome at the time that letter arrived, and he wrote um, this fifth tractate is, is a, basically a response to that letter where he's thinking about this this whole problem and while he's writing apparently uh, another group of people called the uh, the Scythian monks are sent by uh, Justinian when, when Justin first takes over in this case uh, they're not monks uh, no uh, they're not the uh, no wild nomads with archers, but they, by Scythian monks, it just simply meant Romanians, actually. <laughs> they're from, they're from Romania. And they were Latin speaking, uh, and they, with, they had, had the idea that the way to solve this problem was to adopt a confession of faith called the Theopascite formula, which was based on St. Cyril's uh, 12th anathema, that we have to say that uh, one of the Holy Trinity suffered in the flesh. So that was their formula. One of the Trinity suffered. And this um, formula was vigorously opposed by the people I erased, the, uh, the, anti the anti Cyrillian Chalcedonians considered this total heresy and tried to, and actually successfully convinced the Pope at the time. Not to not to endorse this, but to throw these people out of Rome, and and, uh, and they did. But when they went over there, Boethius was influenced by them, and and was and he comes to see that this is right, and the Emperor Justinian sees that this is right, and makes this uh, kind of the basis of his policy is this, no, not to try to bring the Hanoticon back, but to say okay. Chalcedon has to be clarified. So we're going to have Chalcedon. So we're not going to, we're not going to go with Anastasius and say we're going to get rid of Chalcedon. Chalcedon is correct, but it has to be clarified as being in com, com, uh, agreement with Cyril. And the way to do it is to have this, this phrase, one of the Holy Trinity suffered. Now, why is, why is this phrase important? Okay, because the point is, okay, so Council Chalcedon says, there's, oh yeah, there's one, two, two natures, human and divinity, in one person. But it doesn't say, who's that one person? So, from the Nestorian people, they say, that well, that one person is, is Christ, 
And the, pe and the two natures that are in Christ are the Son of God and the man Jesus. So what essentially in Nestorian theology, and this is true of the whole Theodore Mopsuestia group, is they essentially see three people. Jesus, the Son of God, and they consider this heresy because you can't say that the Son of God uh, suffered. It's the man Jesus who's suffering. So, the, so for them, the one person Christ is a kind of, uh, in a way, a fictitious person. I mean, a person you see, but that's not the real person. The real people are behind him. Were they influenced by Gnosticism? Um, no, not Gnosticism, but by uh, Theodore Mopsuestia's uh, response was an anti-Arian, because Arius was saying that Christ cannot really be divine because he's hungry, he's tired. So Theodore Mopsuestia's answer, or well, following his teacher Theodore of Tarsus, was that well, no, it's only the man Jesus who's tired and hungry. The Son of God in heaven is not. And so he, it would seem like a good idea as a way of refuting Arius, but of course that introduces a whole new problem. Well, if, if, the, if the man Jesus is the person dying on the cross, how does that help me? Because if the, if the Son of God is not dying on the cross. So Cyril's response to Nestorius was the real, was he, when Nestorius, Cyril heard kind of what Nestorius was teaching, he said, well, that's you know, undermining the basic point of Christianity is that the Son of God came to die for us. The Son of God rose from the dead. So, even though Cyril's never really developed a coherent or clear terminology, his main point is, who is Christ? Christ is the Son of God. He's not anyone else. And so, by saying, the one of the Holy Trinity suffered, who died on that cross? Not a man, Jesus, but the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, died on the cross. He died in his human, human nature, but, it's, but that's who he is. And so that's why uh, Justinian realized that you had to safeguard this basic uh, foundation of Christianity, that it's, it's the Son of God who's doing all this, nobody else. And so this is why he wanted to introduce this. The amazing thing to us, perhaps, is that this was still incredibly controversial, and the Pope said, "No, you know, I'm not going. I'm not going to endorse this. You, you know, you, he told the Scythians to go home. You know, I don't want you in Rome anymore." Which, which Pope was that? Uh, I have it written down. What was his main objection? Why did the Pope object to that language? Well, probably partly because he didn't want to. Uh, it was Hormizdus. Oh, really? Yeah, partly because he didn't want to have anything other than Leo's tone. There was a kind of fixation that Leo. The Pope had spoken, he made, a, he made a statement, nobody should qualify it, question it, or do it, add anything to it. So more political than real theology now? In, perhaps in his case, but in the case of the people supporting him in making that statement, uh, clearly, the, uh, especially the, the group, the, uh, sleepless, the group called the Sleepless Monks in uh, Constantinople, they are... Uh, definitely coming from the, the theological camp of Theodore Mopsuestia. So for them, it's clearly theological. They rejected this and uh, wrote to the Pope to reject it because they did not believe it. They, I mean, actually, even the, the patriarch of um, the original patriarch of Antioch, who who was rejecting Zeno's Henoticon, uh, was was uh, saying that that Cyril of Alexandria was a fool. Well, this means that. Uh, so this, there was this group in the East that just always thought they, they thought that the Third Ecumenical Council was a big mistake 
that Cyril was a heretic, and they're still around. You know, they were at that at this time. They're still they're still around, and they and to them Chalcedon was uh, a justification for their beliefs, and so they are now. And, and the problem was that the, the popes, beginning with Leo, all took that group of people as their allies. Not because, I don't know that they clearly understood what they were teaching, but they saw that they were supporting the tome, and they were not going to tolerate any questioning of the tome or limitations of the tome. So as far as Leo was concerned, well then that makes you, you're the real orthodox, and the ones who are questioning what I'm saying, well they must be heretics. So, uh, so what happened is, I think inadvertently, partly, the popes continue to prop up. Uh, I guess I should put them back on the board. With the, these, uh, okay, let's say they kind of. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to call them Antiochian, but let's say we could call, you can call them sort of Nestorian Chalcedonians. Are uh, continue to be supported by the pope. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> At this point, is there any, of any of Leo, Leo's uh, objections to the other Orthodox or, or his supporters later, the later popes that supported Leo? Mm -hmm. Is there any injection here or early indications of, of the trying to exert what we would call papal authority now and claiming that he has authority because of his office? Um, well, the popes always like to think that they once they made a decision that that was kind of it, you know, but uh, the rest of the church didn't look at it that way, and so that's why on all these councils, uh, you know, they would make a decision, the council would go on and make so another decision. talk about the formula for this and how he imposed that on the East and what their final reaction was, oh, the signing of, of Right, the I didn't actually talk about that, but I, I got, I'll mention it now, is that when, this with Justin, right, when, because Anastasius, when he switched over to supporting the uh, radical monophysites, he tried to get all the patriarchs to condemn Chalcedon, and they wouldn't, so he got rid of a lot of them. But then, when Justin took over, okay, Justin now is pro-Chalcedon, so he contacts Pope Hermesis and says, okay, well, great, you know, we're back, uh, we're back, we want to be in communion. The Pope said, okay, well, the first thing you have to do is anathematize all of the Chalcedonian patriarchs who uh, signed the Henoticon. So anybody who was, so any Chalcedonian patriarch who signed this Henoticon of supporting the theology of Cyril, as far as I'm concerned, they're all anathematized, and you have to anathematize them. Well, the emperor said, well, I can't do that. You know, I'll cause riots over here. Uh, and finally, there was a kind of private signing of this. Uh, in the palace, but uh, in the east, it, these uh, patriarchs, many of whom were sort of martyrs for Chalcedon, uh, but also believed in, you know, the theology of Cyril, they are they were venerated as saints and continue to be venerated as saints in the east after the signing by the emperor of this formula. So, uh, you know, so Parmenides held out for that from the emperor to get. Because he wanted to have those people condemned because they had defied, you know, his wishes in having the Hanoticon, in going along with Hanoticon. But in fact, the East has always considered those as uh, saintly people, and you know, they're not. Uh, we don't anathematize them. I don't well, know. Well, this period that you mentioned, where uh, I think they call it the Acacian Schism. Yeah. Yes. And there's a period where where the Eastern Church is out of communion with Rome for like I don't know. 
quite a long time. Seven years. Yes, yeah, right. And, and one of the things that never made sense to me about, you know, if, if the Pope was really viewed as, you know, the essential center of the church uh-huh. at that time, how if the East was out of communion with it for seven years, how the people wouldn't have risen up against their, their bishops and patriarchs and say, basically, you cut us off from the Catholic Church for right. seven years. Yeah. No, they didn't look at it that way. And also, it's unclear, I mean, this kind of idea of a unified occasion schism, I mean, they didn't they didn't really think of it that way. Plus, there was negotiations with the popes. Uh, some of the popes, as I said, were favorable to the Hanoticon, and some were not. And uh, Formizdis was one who was not, unfortunately. So when they got to actually doing a deal, he was the one who didn't. But in a way, the Hanoticon was destroyed by Anastasius' uh, support. When he turned his support to the radical Monophysites, the separatist group, and uh, supported them to be in charge of the Monophysite churches as opposed to the ones who were in the Hanukkah, that made it very difficult to return to uh, a unified church because the people who were part of that were now replaced by people who were not. So, so Justinian, he wants, he doesn't, okay, he realizes you can't just politically reinstate the Hanukkah, but what he wants to do is to take the theology of the Hanukkah as developed by these New Chalcedonian writers and to create this same solution, the clarification of Chalcedon to re-emphasize the point of St. Cyril in a kind of combined statement. And he uh, wants his, so he kind of is campaigning on two fronts. One is to support a theological formula in this direction. The second was to get the, the Pope to agree to it. Oh, and then the other side is to get the Monophysites to agree to it. So, he supports the Scythian monks, and then this is where uh, the, the hymn uh, "Only Begotten Son" that we sing uh, at the beginning of the liturgy, the second antiphon, uh, "Only Begotten Son, Word of God," one one of the holy uh, being one of the Holy Trinity was uh, crucified for us. Is actually this this formula of the Scythian monks is part of that hymn, and so Justinian adds it. Uh, in the 530s, as a way, I mean, so he, uh, it's very, kind of strange, you know, it, funny is that uh, we don't really think about it, but because he made this decision that that was what was necessary to solve the problem, uh, rather than holding a council or something, he just said, okay, well, here's the formula that we need, here's a hymn, stick it in the liturgy, and every, every week how we do the liturgy, we, we sing this formula, basically to show that when we accept Chalcedon, we're not accepting Nestorianism. And so we've been singing it ever since. Uh, <laughs> and it's a good, it's a good hymn, uh, it's, and it's because it's a very important theological point. The other thing that he manages is he manages to convince uh, one of the popes that this is also a good idea. Uh, so Pope John II, uh, around the same time, agrees to accept the formula and also, uh, finally, uh, agrees to do something that the other earlier Chalcedonians had never really thought about doing, but Justinian realized was crucial for getting credibility for Chalcedon, and that was to get rid of these people. And essentially, he, uh, he gets the Pope to anathematize them. So, so that by anathematizing these people, the Chalcedon ceases to be represented by 
people who are in fact Nestorian. So there's not, it's not. Uh, so when the Monophysites look over and see, well, what's Chalcedon? There's not a whole bunch of Nestorians saying, yes, you know, you need to become like us and accept Chalcedon. So by getting rid of them, it's just like with the Monophysites condemning the Eutychians. So when we see the Monophysites, there's not Eutychians standing next to them uh, saying the same thing. They, they condemn the Eutychians. We condemn the Nestorians, who use our, even though they accepted Chalcedon. So that kind of cleared the deck for trying to reunite uh, the Monophysites. And he held some uh, theological dialogues very uh, good. Uh, he got the, the, the agreement they reached was that uh, Dioscorus was not uh, condemned as a heretic, but that he was condemned for an, that he was in error to get the Monophysites to agree. So that the Orthodox agreed, okay, Dioscorus is not a heretic for saying from two natures, but the Monophysites agree that he did make an error by being in communion with Eutyches because Eutyches is a heretic. And so that uh, seemed to solve that kind of personal aspect of it. And it started uh, kind of looking positively. And since the, the, this whole, I mean, the Hanadikon had worked in bringing in most of the a union of most of the Monophysites. So Justinian kind of re-taking the driving theological force behind it and supporting it again begins to make progress. There were uh, some difficulties that came, however, one uh, was that there was a plague hit uh, Constantinople around this time, or, or the whole Byzantine Empire, and we hear about the Black Plague of the uh, Middle Ages and how it you know, completely destroyed the, turned medieval society upside down and killed lots of people. You almost never hear about the plague at the time of Justinian, but it was the bubonic plague, and uh, in some cases, as much as 50% of the population died in some cities. So, the, the uh, pop, you know, in terms of the actual impact, it was really the same as the Black Plague in the Middle Ages. It's just that because the Byzantine Empire was so much uh, more organized than medieval society, it withstood that shock, and you don't hear about it. But people often talk about, oh, well, that Justinian, you know, he overextended himself and, you know, because in the Byzantine Empire, you hear about, well, the Byzantine Empire was getting too old and, you know, was getting worn out. Well, the Justinian in his early years had reconquered North Africa, Carthage, Italy, parts of Spain. I mean, Justinian was in the process of reuniting the West directly under imperial control, but then somehow it stops. And then after Justinian, you know, the Byzantine Empire gets kind of weak for a while. And so people, you know, think of it as, as in this kind of theory of, of old age. But it's what's actually the fact that the, uh, there was a plague, and the plague, after, after the first time through, it kept coming back. So for the next hundred years, uh, there was a constant renewed outbreaks that uh, kept the population down. And this is why uh, the Byzantine Empire kind of goes on the defensive. In the, in the period following this. What year was this plague? I guess actually the worst years were 543 and 544 were the, were the years that it was at its worst. One of the other, uh, I want to mention uh, one of the people that's important at this time is the uh, Leontius, one or two people, <laughs> the Leontius of Byzantium, 
and Leontius is Jerusalem. So some people believe that they're two separate, and some say they're the same person. Uh, but whatever. Uh, I I'm a one-person person, but <laughs> that's a not, not universal. Uh, this isn't the story, isn't it? Well, right. It is. <laughs> he uh, he um, was someone who uh, was a kind of took up this theological synthesis of Cyril and uh, Chalcedon and wrote a lot. Actually, the works of Justinian, uh, the first one, particularly the, in here, the letter of the Alexandrian monks, apparently, Leontius of Jerusalem's uh, against the Monophysites is essentially a uh, rough draft of this, of Justinian's letter. They, so they apparently worked uh, together and, and, and what Leontius is also doing is he was uh, pulling together the works of earlier Neo-Chalcedonians. And uh, with Justinian, the, uh, the uh, Florilegia, the quotations from the fathers and everything are all cleaned up and made uh, light, you know, kind of longer and more exact than, than the earlier writers had. The uh, other was the patriarch uh, Ephraim, who is different. He's not Ephraim the Syrian, but he is Ephraim of Antioch, who was the uh, originally Justinian, the Count of, of Antioch, meaning the civil authority over the East. Uh, but he was also a, a very good theologian. He supports this uh, Neo-Chalcedonian writings. His writings, personal writings, don't, his, don't survive, but the accounts of them in the li library of uh, Photius, the Great, and uh, they're excellent too. And the same, the same theme, basically, of putting together Cyril and Chalcedon as in, in the Antius. And this uh, kind of, they both sort of uh, push this agenda. Leontius is helping to probably write Justinian's letters. And then resulting in the Fifth Ecumenical Council in 553. I should say one of the other things that happens before this is that Justinian decides something that Cyril tried to do but failed was he wants, Cyril wanted to condemn the writings of Theodore of Mopsuestia who was Nestorius's teacher. But it was seen as too politically uh, difficult. And Justinian, as part of this, this, again, this synthesis, he decides to do the same thing. So he issued a decree in 543 of condemning the, the what's called the three chapters, which are uh, the writings of Theodore Mopsuestia, uh, the, writings, the, the, the anti-Cyril writings of Theodoret of Cyrus and the anti-Cyril writings of Ibis. Part of the problem was that Theodoret and, and Ibis were both restored at the Council of Chalcedon after being condemned at the Council of Ephesus. So Justinian wanting to condemn their writings, people said, well, then you're criticizing the Council of Chalcedon because they allowed them to res resume communion. But his argument is, well, they let them resume communion because they repented. That doesn't mean they endorsed their writings against St. Cyril. And there was a lot of opposition uh, to this, partly in the West, uh, but uh, Justinian continued to push it, and actually in the Fifth Council, ultimately the Fifth Council condemns the three chapters as well. But part of the reason for people were opposing it is they said, well, these people are dead, are dead already. How do you condemn people that are dead? But I think... Uh, rightly, you can condemn their writings 
and because they're heretical. And the problem was that Nestorius was just a disciple of Theodore. So, I mean, condemning Nestorius left these other people still around. You know, and, and actually, when you look at the church, the Nestorian Church of Persia, I mean, the reason why that's a Nestorian church is because, not from the influence of the writings of Nestorius, of which who wrote very little, but because Theodora Mopsuestia, who wrote lots, was the main textbooks for the Persian church. So uh, the influence of Theodore of Mopsuestia was uh, kind of the foundation of Nestorianism. And so Justinian saw that it was essential to condemn Theodore of Mopsuestia in order to gain credibility for the Chalcedonian. You know, in other words, he was a firm, he said, you have to support Chalcedon, but you also have to, uh, you know, you have to uh, support, fully support Cyril and reject the Nestorian terminology. And that's his, uh, his works in here, that's essentially what he's doing is he's, uh, he's combining, he's defending the, the parts of, of like Leo's tome that were controversial and showing how they can be kind of interpreted in an orthodox way, but then he's also kind of lining up quotations from St. Cyril that go together and putting and showing how the two go together and, uh, the, and answering Monophysite objections to that. Uh, I just want to mention, with, along one of the other things that I haven't really talked about in connection of the Fifth Council was uh, the condemnation of Origen, because during this period also there was some, un it's unclear what exactly, but there were some Origenists, in, uh, some resurgence of Originism in the monasteries of Palestine, leading to the condemnation of Origen at the council in 553. Again, the question of because it happened after his death, but uh, the same thinking sort of went on with as condemning Theodore is that where the writings continue to act as an influence, the errors in the writings need to be condemned. Yes. Could you uh, just quickly uh, summarize what you mean by Originism? Yes, well, okay. Originism is easy to summarize. What the, what the people in the monasteries actually thought or were doing that provoked all this is not easy to say because we really don't, there's nothing overtly originist being written at this time. Uh, there are some accusations of originist teaching, but uh, so we don't really know what was going on. But anyway, the condemnation of origin, it, it matches very much the condemnations done in the 400s when originism was, was more prevalent in Egypt. But uh, the idea, the main heresy of originism was that the original creation was creation of souls and that the souls rebelled against God or fell away from God and that the punishment of the fall was the material bodies. And so the originist heresy is really that our physical existence is a result of sin and it extends sort of to marriage as well, that all of that is part of the sinful world and not really redeemable. Yeah, so the Orthodox reject that because we say, no, the material world is part of the creation of God, marriage is part of the creation of God, and good, yes. The Orthodox, I'm an Orthodox, so I'll, okay. but I'm going to ask you, the Orthodox accept the universalism of origin? No, uh, in a sense that everyone ultimately will be yeah, saved. Right. Uh, no, we don't. Except that uh, Gregory of Nyssa did, but uh, we think he was mistaken. Yeah. Although we don't necessarily exclude, you don't say that they, everyone, a certain number of people have to be condemned, but it just say that 
the mistake we think he made is that he made it a necessity that everyone would be saved, whereas we would say that the salvation or damnation of each person is determined by the choices that each person makes. And so if a person eternally chooses to reject God, God is not going to force that person to become saved. I mean, that's – so we leave it open-ended, but we don't agree with – you know, I think the heresy of that would be just the implication that God ultimately forces salvation upon people, which we don't say that he does. The idea you mentioned about organism basically rejecting the material world as evil. Yes. How is that different – I know that's a part of Gnosticism, too, but how is it different than this Gnosticism? It's not too different. The difference – okay, well, the difference is that the Gnostics ascribe the creation of the material world to the devil, which they identify with the Old Testament God. And so this is all malicious, and we are – our souls are escaping from the evil creator God. Origen is saying, well, no, it's not the devil who did it, but it's – God allowed all that to happen, but he allowed it to happen because of our sins. So essentially our sinfulness created the material world. That's similar to Hinduism. Hinduism is like – Is it? Yeah, okay. Well, Hinduism is like Gnosticism. Gnosticism is like Gnosticism. Well, the origin – the question of origin is one of those – of this time period, it's one of those big topics that's still very much up in the air that scholars are still searching out what exactly – you know, what exactly was the originism of this time. But I – not to overload the class, I'll just say that that was happening, and it's also – that's what happened at this council was the formal condemnation of origin. But I won't go into it. But I'll just – I just actually – to finish up, I guess I just wanted to read to you a few of the – or maybe I'll just summarize a few of the decisions of the council. The chapters of the council are in the form of anathemas, and they are pretty similar, although not exactly, to the anathemas at the end of Justinian's – his edict on the right faith introduced – that was published two years before the council. In a sense, Justinian, in the edict on the right faith, kind of summed up neo-Chalcedonianism, and that summary became kind of the basis for the deliberations in the council, and the council – bishops of the council rearranged things a little bit, but essentially more or less had the same decisions. And what he's doing is taking the formulas of Cyril and the formulas of Leo, of Chalcedon, and he's saying that both of these formulas are potentially orthodox, and they're both potentially heretical. So, okay, if you understand Leo the way that the Monophysites fear that someone – that Leo is meaning, in other words, if Leo is interpreted in a Nestorian way, the way these guys interpret him, then that's a heresy, and we condemn it. If you interpret Cyril in the way the Eutychians interpret him, that's a heresy. We condemn that. So we can condemn in two natures and from two natures if they're falsely understood. However, we also accept from two natures and in two natures if they're understood in an orthodox way. So what he's doing is saying, okay, that both sets of formulas 
are susceptible to heretical interpretation, and we we reject the Orthodox Church in the Fifth Ecumenical Council ecumenically rejects the false interpretation of both things, and we both accept. Uh, so we accept Leo and the Chalcedon, but we also accept Cyril, and that's kind of the uh, the summary that the kind of uh, finalizes this whole movement that was going on since the Council of Chalcedon of trying to keep Cyril and Leo together into one unified uh, theology. And that's that's kind of the basis. That's what we would consider uh, the basis of our modern Orthodox Christology is this council. And it's, a, and it's interesting also, our, in a way, it tells us that uh, the words of a formula by themselves, the words are not uh, the essential part but the orthodox understanding is the essential part. Yes. In a sense, that shouldn't be a surprise because these yeah. holy scriptures that can be interpreted in a variety of right. ways. Right. By, by the uh, devil. Our know. own creations and uh, our, yeah. our experience and our knowledge of, of the teachings of the apostles can is, is not likely to fare any better. That's right. And I like I like Justinian's approach there by turning it all around and saying, well, let's not talk about essences and natures and, and, and terminologies which is really the realm of philosophers in a way, and, uh -huh. and more, more likely to be misunderstood. But let's get down to the, the practical brass tacks. Uh -huh. Who is this? Who is this suffering on the cross? You know? Yeah, I think that was a that was a master stroke in a way of getting right down to it. Saying, well, practically, you know, this does have a practical implication. Mm -hmm. So this isn't just a bunch of arguing about nothing. Mm -hmm. So that. There will be lots of people who would who would think it was just you know, arguing about how many angels. Oh, right, as a, as, as a point, yeah. this is the point. Right, and if, and, if, and if your interpretation of whether you're able to Cyril or or Leo, if you can wind up here, then you're you're okay. Safe. Yeah, you're okay. But if right you can't, then you're out of bounds. Then he doesn't just go. You know, the temptation would perhaps be to go just kind of more and more involved philosophical explanations, but he. In fact, backs away from that whole. Thing. I, and, and I guess you remind me that 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 his the formula that he kind of adopted at the early part of his reign as the solution, this one of the late Trinity suffered, it is affirmed in the uh, council. It would look to me like that uh, the Fifth Council did a good job of uh, answering the objections of. The, the Copts and Jacobites and, yes. and uh, Armenians, uh, but yet they didn't come back. Well, um, I mean, partly they did. I mean, if, you know, but prior to the Muslim, uh, there were still some controversies that emerged in the process of them coming back that are still perhaps somewhat unresolved today. But uh, the general movement uh, from the Fifth Council on was towards a reunification. And uh, many of the Monophysite writers complained prior to the Muslim conquest that their whole congregations had left to, you know, and that everyone had joined the Orthodox Church. And then when the Muslims came, of course, the Muslims did not support this. Uh, so what they did was they they <coughs> got rid of the bishops who were in union with the Orthodox because it was the empire still, and they put in the bishops who people who wanted to be bishops who were opposed to any union. And so uh, this group of, uh, well, I erase them, but the, the radical Monophysite group, which almost, uh, they saw themselves as virtually extinct 
on the on the verge on the edge of the Muslim conquest was became the officially endorsed uh, churches of leaders of the, of the Monophysite Church under the Muslim government, and so that's who has been in charge now for the last uh, 1,500 years. So then, do you think if the Muslims had taken over those right. lands, that they would be Orthodox now? Yeah, I think that's wow. It. The, uh, or if there was a still a, a separatist church, it would be very small. 